0: Recently, the Dallas Morning News posted an article that said the Metro has added another million people over the last 10 years. That brings the rough estimate to 7.8 million people in Dallas and Fort Worth and the surrounding metropolitan area. So if you wonder why it feels like you can't go anywhere without running into a whole bunch of people, that's why. So it's not uncommon for us to use a get-to-know-you question. It's Not like all of these people had the privilege of being native Texans. Where are you from? It's a good get to know you question, isn't it? Helpful. You can discover some interesting things about that person that you might not have already known. Because I am not from Texas, I have the opportunity to tell people, because they can't quite place my accent, that I'm from South Carolina. A place rich in beauty and history from the upstate of South Carolina, because there is a difference between the upstate and the low country where Charleston is. The upstate of South Carolina nestled in the foothills of the Blue Ridge Mountains. Just a little while away from beauties in Asheville, North Carolina. A home to uh, not only great history, but delicious food. Some of the best barbecue, oh, I'm sorry, that's pulled pork barbecue that you ever have. And you'll know you're in South Carolina because it is a mustard-based sauce, not that weird North Carolina red wine vinegar-based sauce. But as far as I might have traveled... The reality is there is always going to be that part of me that has been forever shaped by that state that for so many years was home for me. But in 2013, God brought us to Texas, and my driver's license says Texas, and my license plates say Texas. My phone number area code says Georgia, but that's because I'm lazy. I don't want to change my phone number. But that's, that's more of a technicality. My citizenship is Texas. Even two of my three children have birth certificates that say Texas on them. So my hopes are that whenever the great secession does happen, I've got a few anchor babies <laughs> that keep me in the good graces <laughs> take it into consideration <laughs> hopefully because i i still have a hard time with tex mex being a valid form of food <laughs> it's going to get worse <laughs> i don't own proper boots or a hat but i'm nonetheless texan because that's where i live paul lives in a different era when paul is writing to philippians it's not the place where you live that defines your citizenship it's the place that you were from that places um, customs and rules, that is your citizenship as you work and live and play in other parts of the world. It is the place that identifies your status and privilege and duties. So here's what we're going to see in our text today. The resurrection of Jesus, the good news, the announcement the declaration of his victory over sin and death and grave and the reality that he is king and lord of all, in all of that, something has changed in the economy of the the citizens of the kingdom of God. No longer is your citizenship defined by where you're from, Or where you are, it is defined by where you're going. So what we want to see this morning is how Paul brings us to light as we continue in our series in Philippians. Turn if you would. It's printed in your program or you can find it in a Bible that may be in a pew rack in front of you or on a smart device you brought with you. However you find it, stand and turn with me to Philippians chapter 3. Verses 17 through 21, let's hear God's word. All of this is still within the context of Philippians uh, chapter 3, verses 9 through 11, where Paul says that he desires, he, he counts everything else as garbage. The Greek word skubala, which is the nice way of saying something unpleasant, he, that he may f- consider all these things as scuba, as rubbish, compared to the surpassing joy of being found in Jesus and known by him, that I may know him, verse 10, in the power of his resurrection, and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead. So that's the whole context that Paul's going off of. And we talked last week about Paul saying, I'm not perfect yet, But we're all still on the way towards glory. And now where we bring our text this morning, beginning in verse 17. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. This is God's Word. Let's pray. When the women arrived at the tomb, Father, they expected death. What awaited them instead was a declaration of life. Father, you have always kept your promises, every single one of them. You promised Eve that one would come from her who would crush the head of the serpent. You promised Abraham that there would be descendants, as many as the stars in the sky. You promised Moses that you would surround your special people and be their God. You promised David that there would be a king that would come from his line who would never leave the throne. And you have promised us that if we find our faith and trust and hope in Jesus, we will never die, but in you we will live. You've also promised, O God, that your word will not return void. It will accomplish the very purpose for which it was set out to do. So do that today. Do that so that our eyes may see, our ears may hear, and our hearts may understand and be changed. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You see it. Anytime you encounter the Word of God, it asks questions of us. And so this morning, the the text is going to ask us two questions that we need to answer. The first question is going to be in the first part of the text. It's, who are you following? Who are you following? And then the second question is, where are you going? Who are you following? Where are you going? Paul gets straight after it in verse 17. He says, brothers, join in imitating me. Because in this world, you're going to encounter two types of guides, two types of people worth following, two types of people um, that are going to try and get you to imitate them. They're going to advocate two types of walking. So Paul's going to start by exhorting the church, join in imitating me, and then draw their attention to the example that you have in us. So here's the thing. Faith in Jesus can only come through God's gracious gift of bringing dead people, that's you and I, to life. Let me ask you something. The last time you encountered a dead person, how many good decisions did the dead person make? Right. You're like, that question doesn't even make sense. Dead people don't make good decisions. They're dead. Well, right. The scriptures say that you and I are dead in our trespasses and our sins. So unless you've been supernaturally brought from death to life, Deciding that you're going to be a moral person or a good person or a religious person or a Jesus-loving person is like asking a cadaver to make a good decision. It doesn't work. It doesn't happen. What you need is not resolution to do better things. You need resurrection. You need the power of God to come in you just like he did in Jesus and animate the body from death to life. And so Paul's saying what he is calling the church to do is those that have been made alive by grace through faith in Jesus imitate us. Now, the reality is that um, growing uh, growing in Jesus, how does that happen? Again, we are empowered by grace through faith, and it happens as we observe and practice. It happens as we observe and practice. It's like the farmer that comes and cultivates his crops. If you put seeds in the ground and bury the seeds... Those seeds don't just come alive just because they're in the ground. They have to be cultivated. They have to be watered. They have to have sunlight. They have to have the right nutrients given to them so that they can sprout and grow. So Paul's saying that you are to watch us. So what have we seen Paul model so far for us in Philippians? Let me try and give you a really quick summary of this letter of joy. Um, we've seen him model how to suffer well. Remember, Paul is in prison right now. He's, in, he's under house arrest in Rome. He's under chains right now. And so Paul is writing this letter and saying, this is um, that my joy is in Jesus. Um, I want to show you how to suffer well to desire the expanse of the kingdom of God, even if it is at Paul's expense. Um, We've seen him value others' needs as being greater than his own, that he would desire to love them, even if he knows there's never going to be that mutuality, there's never going to be that reciprocity of love coming back to him. We've seen Paul say that the ultimate model of faith is the humility of Jesus that sent him from heaven to earth, from earth to the grave, and from the grave to resurrection. There was nothing holding Jesus down and saying that you have to do this. Jesus did it willingly. We've seen Paul commend his friends Timothy and Epaphroditus as living, breathing examples of Christ-likeness worked out in the everyday mundane of life. And we've seen Paul implore the church to see the supreme value and worth of knowing nothing than Christ and the resurrection from the dead. That's what he has said is, is everything that matters. And then last week, we saw Paul summon the mature to mimic his maturity by admitting that they were far from complete, far from perfect, far from the finish line, and so to follow him as he follows Christ all the way to the finish line. What he has implied before in this text Throughout this letter, he is now going to say with blunt honesty imitate me. Imitate me. Don't just admire me. Don't just nod your head approvingly at my actions and say that those are good and noble and lovely things and idyllic and sweet and isn't that nice? What's for lunch? These things that Paul is saying is for everyone. So part of the question in uh, answering who are you watching should then lead you to, answer to some further exploration of what is your life starting to look like? Because this project... Um, as we've been stating over and over and over again, is not a you and Jesus personal, private, religious project that you take on in the in the privacy of your home when no one is watching. What Paul is saying uh, and what we have said is that this project of imitating Jesus is not an individual, self-help self-help project. It is a together project. It is an everyone project. Scripture calls us here to be known together and to imitate good guides and good examples together. It is a community project. And that's why Paul doesn't just appeal to himself, but in verse 17, to the example that you have in us follow us look at us you all together paul saying watch us to be in christ is to rest in who Jesus is and what he has done on the cross. To rest in Christ is to trust that he alone has paid the sacrifice for our sin and made the way straight for us to enjoy a restored relationship with the God of the universe. But to follow Christ also means that we are not standing still. You look at verse 14, which we looked at last week. Paul said, I press on. This idea of the Olympic athlete straining forward and pressing on. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. There is no standing still. There is no marking time. There is no checkbox mentality to the Christian life. Paul would not have recognized it. Jesus doesn't recognize it. called the Christian life is to resist a checkbox Christianity that assumes that with a few correct phrases and a few truths to be agreed to, that one is good. Now, certainly there is a beautiful simplicity of the gospel. It's Jesus that did everything for you and I that we could not do on our own. He lived the life that we should have lived and died the death we deserved to die. But to grow in him, to mature in him, to be found in him, to be more like him, is a process of cultivation that, again, God um, attends with, with great tenderness and grace and mercy and power by his spirit. But it's not a, well, thanks for that. I'll see you later type of faith. It is instead a restless pursuit of Christ to grow in him and be found in him all while resting in him. Can you say paradox? It's a paradox. Run to grasp the Christ that has grasped us. Restlessly pursue the one whose grace you rest in. As one theologian put it, that which you revere, you resemble. That which you revere, you resemble. He would go on and say either for ruin or for restoration. But that's a lot of ours. Let's stick with the first part. That which you revere, you resemble. If you revere people who are resembling Jesus, you're going to start to have their life and their love rub off on you for your good. If you revere people who resemble something else, you're gonna have that life and that love rub off on you as well. So who are you revering? Who are you resembling? What what does it look like to resemble Jesus? Well, Friends, in part, it looks like loving the things that Jesus says is lovely. Now, Jesus isn't doing that to be heaven's taskmaster, you were made, listen, you were made in the image of God to be in fellowship with God. You were made through God to be in fellowship with one another, not one-upsmanship with one another. And so the degree to which you find your life looking like it is loving the things that Jesus says is lovely and resisting the things that Jesus says this isn't good for you is the degree to which you're beginning to resemble Jesus. In an op-ed recently in the New York Times, David Brooks had a really interesting piece um, about the spiritual crisis uh, going on in our present society. And he listed five points that are causing um, great levels of crisis at a cultural level. Now, what's interesting, um, not because I agree with Brooks on everything, although I really do think he's a great, ironic writer, um, one of the things that's most interesting to me is that these five lies that he puts forward in his piece are the very types of... um, um, Lies that bec- that can become those role models that are catastrophic in our lives. Listen to the first lie. He said the first lie that is besetting the younger generation is this. Um, he said that the idea is that we are if we are successful in our careers, life will be good. If we're successful in our careers, life will be good. Now your uh, your parents and grandparents. Um, lived in a very unique time where they could get a job with a particular company, work for that job for 30 or 40 years, um, derive a pension, and then retire. Do you realize that now most people are staying with a job three to five years? There are so many retirement plans and pension plans running around right now, it's going to be catastrophic when people go to retire and try and bring together all of their funds. The idea that your career can bring you happiness is changing. The idea that your career can bring you a successful feeling in life isn't necessarily true. Here's the second lie. Second lie is I can make myself happy. This is the lie of self-sufficiency. The idea that happiness can be an individual accomplishment and that with one more hurdle, happiness is just, Around the corner. How many of you have thought that if I can just get through this season of life, I'm going to finally turn the corner and be happy? Anybody? Mm. Here's the third one. The third lie. And this is, again, David Brooks, New York Times, not the most, uh, you know, touchy-feely religious publication in the world. Third lie, life is an individual journey. This is the type of, of lie that we find in such books as Dr. Seuss is the places you'll go. Now, I'm not cracking on Seuss. <clears throat> However, when you hand that book to a college graduate, it's all the memories that you're going to make, all the experiences you're going to have on your individual journey through the world life is what you make of it your memories are what you get from them and it's all up to you to derive your own happiness but what you're going to do you're going to do it by yourself because you can't trust anyone and relationships hurt so life is an individual journey this is a lie fourth one you are responsible for finding your own truth Now, there's a lot we could say on that, right? There's been a collapse of trust in social institutions and other things. But that infects us all as well, doesn't it? I can't know it's true unless I can somehow prove it to myself or believe it with all my heart. Fifth lie that he says is is crushing people in the world. Rich and successful people are worth more than poorer and less successful people. It's amazing how the desire to be a little bit more like my neighbor infects us all. Now here's the thing. I can promise you that there are people in here right now who have revered one of these ideologies, maybe several of them, The reason that I can say that with absolute certainty that there is at least somebody in here that has revered one and maybe several of the ideologies that are listed in this op-ed is because I'm talking to you. See what I did there? Okay. I can also promise you that you and I have all looked up to people, revered them even, who embodied some version of success in believing these lies. And that we have also experienced the impoverishment of straining really hard after them and finding all of them failing. But not being able to give them up. Because that's the way that lies work. They seem true. Paul sought these things out as well, right? He, sought, he was a professional religious person. He was assured of his own rightness, he was happy in his accomplishments assured of his own truth. And then he was struck blind and brought to life by Jesus. And now his past credentials are nothing, and he wants nothing more than to be found in Christ. And Paul has a sober warning to those that would peddle in lies, that would model a version of life that can promise satisfaction apart from salvation. There are those among us who are walking even now as the enemies of God in Christ. Now, here's here's the really sobering part of the text. And you ought to listen to this part. Look at verse 18. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears. What does he mean by that? Earlier in the letter, he's talked about people that are just hostile to the faith. In other letters that he's had, he's talked about people that are straight antagonistic to the faith. But what are these people? These are people that would have um, professed some level of faith and trust in Jesus. They would have professed at least a surface level of religiosity in Jesus who are now operating apart from the gospel, apart from the good news of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done and are now doing so at their peril and are putting other people at peril as well. He says in verse 19 that these enemies of the cross of Christ do whatever they want. They don't care what the scriptures say. Their God is their appetites. Their glory is in their shame. With minds set on whatever the world says is good. And Paul weeps for them. Because the pattern of their lives does not match the profession of their faith. Now can we talk about that for just a second? Can we talk about what it means for the pattern of your life, that is, what you do, to line up to the profession of faith, that is, what you say? If you say you believe in Jesus, your life ought to be patterned by a life that looks like you believe in Jesus, by loving the things that Jesus says is lovely, by um, attending to the things that Jesus says is life-giving by putting to death in your life the things that could suck away life from you. It is the pattern of your life matching the profession of your faith. And Paul says, weeping, weeping bitterly, there are people even now where pattern and profession have diverged. Because it's these types of folks that are the hardest to reach. It's the, these folks are the ones that have succumbed to checklist Christianity, but whose lives and loves don't actually point to Jesus, but instead point to one of the countless myriads of counterfeits the world has to offer. What Paul's saying is this it, 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 it is not matters of degree or shades of gray fixating on anything other than Christ is behaving like an enemy of his cross and displaying a mindset captivated by mere earthly things. When your identity is secure in what Jesus has done for you at the cross and at his resurrection and in the present truth that God is smiling at you and has poured his spirit into you so that you um, can run this big together relay race together, With all the other Christians that God has put in your path, you find that you are beginning to breathe and to live and to experience life as you were made and designed to live. And not only that, you're also finding yourself to be patient with those around you as they aren't quite in the same place you are. So as we're considering the resurrection, the first thing, the first question this text forces us to to answer is, who am I revering? Who am I following? Who am I trying to look like? If you can't answer that question with anything other than Christ and Christ alone, and point at ways that the pattern of your life matches that profession of your mouth, it's worth a further conversation. It's worth further exploration. But there's another question, um, and that is the question of citizenship. It's the question that we're going to turn our thoughts to now quickly. Where are you going? That's really the, the second question of the text. Here's the astonishing claim that Paul lays out in verse 20. He says, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So what he's saying is, it is not where you are from that defines your mannerisms and your heritage, but rather where you are going that defines your mannerisms and your heritage. It is your future home that dictates your present reality. Jesus is king. He is bigger than the state of Texas, the presidency, the world, the nations, the rulers. His rule is supreme. His throne is forever. Because God's grace through Jesus has done the unbelievable. It has made sinners saints. It has made the haughty humble, the proud patient. The ones who would demand that we be served instead, God's grace made us servants the grace of God creates supernatural changes When you have experienced this firsthand, you know what it is that I'm talking about. It doesn't make you a nicer person. It makes you a new person. It doesn't make you a better person. It makes you a born-again person. You're completely, radically, totally changed from the inside out. You find the lovely things that Jesus says are, in fact, lovely, and you pursue with the energy that Jesus gives you the things that he says are worthy of pursuits. And Paul simply has this to say, if you are pretending to be in Christ with an outward veneer of religious while still on the inside chasing, pursuing, and doing whatever you want to achieve your own aims and happiness, your answer to where are we going or where am I going is not the one you want. Our citizenship, he says, verse 20, is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. This is what it is to be changed by him. This is what it is to await the change that will yet still come by him. Paul states tersely and bluntly. If you are not in Christ, your end is destruction. For those whose citizenship is earthly, as one scholar puts it, the grave marks the boundary of your hopes and dreams. You'd better grab life with gusto and hope that it's enough, but it will never be. The vision of Paul, and indeed the point of Easter Sunday, is not pastels or platitudes or helpful and inspiring talks. It's all about pointing towards a future that is slowly being realized into our present, that there will yet be another resurrection, a glorious resurrection, where our bodies will be raised like Jesus was raised, and our lives will begin again as they were intended. Resurrection means that we need not fear that our lives must be filled with all now that will maximize our pleasure because this is only the only chance that we get. No, rather, Jesus will return. He will resurrect his people. He will restore their bodies. The cross is empty and so is the tomb. But that is the introduction to the story, not the end of it. Just as Jesus was raised in power from the grave and given a body that was real and material and could never ever be harmed by pain or disease or death, so our bodies will be like his. Jesus is resurrected. He is king. He is Lord. All power in heaven and on earth belong to him. Paul says that he has the power to subject all things to himself. So, dear friends, the question is, in light of his kingship, in light of his lordship, in light of his rule, and in light of his resurrection, who are you following and where are you going? That is the question that not only must be answered today, but it sets the trajectory for the rest of our lives. Because indeed, the way that question is answered now has impacts for all of eternity in the world to come. What are you revering? What are you resembling? What are you banking on for your resurrection? Where is your citizenship? How do you know? Does your future destiny direct your present reality? How? How does it do that? What do you love? What are you willing to start doing or stop doing because you love Jesus? How do you know that you're loved by Jesus? How do you know? I'll tell you that. You know because he gave himself for you. He gave himself for you. He didn't die for some future better version of you that he's hoping is going to show up someday when you get your act together. He died for the worst, ugliest, most rancid part of you on your most heinous, God-hating days possible. And he'd do it again because he loves you. He endured death and shame and scorn. He rose victorious with the crown of life and bids you to come and embrace him and allow him to bring you to life in him, to love him, to long for him, and thus to live for him. But We need his help in doing that. If there's anything that we know about this, And believe me, there are only a very few things that get me out of the bed in the morning and keep me going when I see and hear some of the things that I see of and hear of and experience in this world, and that is this. God raised a man from death to life 2,000 years ago. I don't understand much, and I don't know much, but this I do know. If he can do that in him, he can do that in me, and he can do that in you.